I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at capitalallocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. Today's sponsored insight highlights BIPSYNC, the research management software that helps asset owners and managers optimize pre and post investment decision making. I sat down with Annie Kearns and Blake Fisher from the University of Virginia Investment Management Company, also known as UVIMCO. Annie leads investment operations and Blake oversees technology at the $14 billion endowment. Annie and Blake offer up a detailed case study on how investment technology decisions are made, the importance of a sound research process across the organization, and how BIPSYNC has fueled efficiency and collaboration at UVIMCO. Thanks again to BIPSYNC, and please enjoy my conversation with Annie and Blake. Annie and Blake, it's so great to see you. Nice to see you too. I'm so excited about today because I want to nerd out on all things technology to talk about research management systems, talk about your selection of BIPSYNC. But first, I'd love to take a step back and actually get a little bit of information on what UVIMCO is and maybe an overview of the organization. Sounds great. Thanks for having us today, Scott. UVIMCO is UVA investment management company. So we invest funds on behalf of the university and associated organizations. So we have a direct relationship with UVA, as well as a dozen or so shareholders who have separate accounts for us. So it's great that we get to interact with the main university finance team, as well as all those separate organizations, the law school, the business schools, et cetera. Right now, we're just shy of 45 full-time staff, with about half of us focused on ops roles. Given our AUM size, we are lucky to have a lot of great internal talent. We have in-house legal team, Blake's technology team, investment ops, admin, as well as our corporate team, since we are separate from the university. And how big is the endowment as a whole? Right now, our AUM's right under $14 billion. We primarily invest via our long-term pool which is typically we invest via fund structures. We also have a short-term pool that some of our foundations just use for short-term liquidity needs as well. That's great. Could you give an overview of the operations? What's the mandate? So my team right now, we have eight people that focus on the core investment operations functions. So what might be unique among our peers is I'm not in charge of the ODD oversight or legal. We have great people internally who manage that phenomenal ODD person as well as in-house legal team. So we don't have to use a lot of outside counsel or other. In my purview, we focus on the basic things like treasury for the cash flows to handle all the capital calls, the subscriptions the valuations and are responsible for the data management, whether it be underlying holdings. So we just really take ownership of that. We also handle audit and tax. We certainly engage with groups outside to help us, but my team is really responsible for that. And I would say the final bucket is performance reporting. We have someone in-house who can make sure that gets reported out to our shareholders and our board in the appropriate manner. Great. And then where does tech fit into this whole equation, Blake? On the technology side, we have a total of five staff that would be developers, 
We have some help desk support. And then we also have some vendors that help provide some of our infrastructure support that we lean on. What we manage under the technology umbrella really fits into a few different categories. There's the systems and infrastructure side, cybersecurity, and then there's this continuous development and software development. With respect to how the team is allocated, we have one who really handles the bulk of the day-to-day help desk requests, but we're a very small team by headcount. As Annie mentioned, there's 45 staff total managing 14 billion in AOM. So in some ways, we treat ourselves like enterprise. And in other ways, we behave like a small business. It just depends on what kind of aspects we're tackling. Under the technology team, we are a little of both, but I like to think of us like we're a small team of developers and staff that help support the organization and build systems and integrate our systems to better UVM commission. Annie, you want to talk a little bit about the interplay between the investment team? Obviously, it's critical to think about the market values, performance, manager notes, letters. Could you share what that responsibility looks like at Uvemco? I'll give a little bit of background about our investment process and how that plays out here. Our CIO has been delegated investment authority by our board. So we have weekly investment committee meetings where we might talk about high-level investment topics. And then we also move through the investment pipeline process from initial meeting to tear sheet to recommendation. I would say there are certainly some operational staff who are involved in the very beginning part of that pipeline, ODD, as well as legal, very involved with the docs, as well as identifying the things that make the investment unique or might be important to us investment-wise or operationally. My team participates in the investment committee, maybe in more of a little bit of a passive way. So we make sure we're staying abreast of what's happening, what are the foundational things that we need to know up front so that as soon as the investment docs are signed, we are really ready to go. Once those are signed is when that handoff occurs with the data management, as well as in a system that sync. As soon as the CI approval is done, our team really takes control of certain pieces of data within BIPSync and it's actually locked down so that only ops can do it. Once an investment is onboarded, our team's really responsible for the data management of that, whether it be cash flows, valuations, holdings. It's important for us to ensure that's in our systems accurately and our investment team knows how to and can easily access the data. So I would say those are the main structured ways my team is involved. The less structured ways, I would say, are really facilitated by in-office interactions, whether it be bi-weekly lunches, you glean some information that's happening with an investment, follow up and see what's happening. Also, I've been here six years. Throughout that time, I really put an emphasis on myself and my team, developing great relationships with our investment team. So you can have the information flow both ways. For me personally, I've learned what do our senior investment team, what pieces of data do they want me to tell them and keep them apprised of? And I've also found most of them are super helpful. It's important for me to think about If I can ask my investment team to follow up with a manager for one thing, what do I want that one thing to be? A few weeks ago, a good story of that is I was just sitting in my office trying to work on our fiscal year and close. And one of our managing directors comes spraying over, hey, Annie, I have so-and-so on the call. I know you have a question. Come ask it right now. And I think that's just a perfect example of the relationships you build and keeping each other apprised of what's happening so you can be collaborative. On the technology side, I would say One of the things that we add to that process is where I think of us as an enabler across the organization. 
And that's one of my main focuses here is to make sure that everyone's working on what is important to them. And so they see their slice of the pie. But the important part about this is that these handoffs are much cleaner if we think about all of our processes and thus our systems and our platforms holistically. And so one of our main goals in achieving that is making sure that when the deal sourcing team starts, they are the controller of this data and the flow and the process. And at some point, there has to be a clean handoff. And our flows in our processes and into our systems have to support that. Once that is aligned, you've got a way to very cleanly across the organization have a more collaborative nature. Well, Blake, what you described, I think, is every operations team dream. Obviously, BipSync is helping you today with these handoffs and seamless communication across processes. Why don't you take us back to how this process started and what life was like before BipSync? It's an interesting story how we got there. It's just an interesting road, the journey to get there for us. Obviously, we adopted BipSync and we think it's a great system. We selected it out of all of them. Our journey there was a little bit less direct because when I first started here full-time, the question that was posed collectively from the organization was, well, we can't really seem to find what we're looking for easily in the existing research management platform. I realized, okay, we've got to put a committee together to figure out how are we going to solve this? How are we going to solve this problem of the investment team can't find the research easily? So this process initially... Annie wasn't on the first committee. That was because we had multiple systems. We had a sequence of systems that diverged. I think of the history of systems at UBIMCO in terms of eras. We think pre-2012, all of our stuff was maybe stored on a file share. A lot of it was still paper, getting scanned into systems. But you had to use a folder structure and a file system. And we might have had some Excel involved in that process. And then around 2012, Uvimco decided to onboard a document management system to kind of help solve that. And the goal was to make it the one-stop shop. It was the primary system of record. It was going to unify everything. All of our content was going to be stored there. It was going to store calm notes. It was going to store capital account statements and store all of these things. It worked initially. We noticed was that certain types of content didn't lend themselves well to that model. In particular, the research side that the investment team was focused on. When those are stored in a document management system, it makes it particularly hard when you're dealing with revisions of data. So you'll end up with a piece of content of whatever sort. It might be an Excel document. It might be call notes. It might be a risk report. And you might have derived information from that. If you upload a copy of it and someone pulls a copy down and does something locally and then stores it elsewhere but doesn't, re-upload that into that system. It's like you've got two different versions of that information, and it's not entirely clear which one is the most updated. So recognizing that, Uvimco, around 2016, the investment team recognized that this wasn't necessarily going to work well for the research side. Operation side at that point, though, had a lot of workflows tied into the existing document management system. And so there was a decision made to onboard a new research platform and leave the existing document management system in place. Theoretically, the new RMS was to be the primary system of record for the investment team, and it was to be tailored to their needs. The existing document management system would be retailored to the needs of the operations group, and each team would 
theoretically have everything they need in exactly the form they need because they each have their own system. It's a good idea in theory, but in practice, what ends up happening is that line of what content goes where is not such a bright line. An example of that would be we might upload a capital account statement to the document management system. Rarely does the investment team directly interact with those. They might need the data derived from them, but they don't typically need those. Although occasionally they do want access to them. And so if the investment team doesn't have access to this other system or infrequently uses it, it creates a bottleneck for access to this information. Anytime we had information that needed to either span from one team to the other or a handoff from one team to the other, which happens in every single investment life cycle that makes it past a perspective, in those scenarios, it made those handoffs a little bit more cumbersome. And what was evident was that people using their system weren't 100% happy with it, but couldn't exactly articulate that they weren't unhappy because they couldn't get the data that they needed out of the other system or the system that it was in. It was just hard to find the right copy. So there was a lot of ad hoc requests. There were a lot of these handoffs. Yeah, I would say it definitely made us not as nimble as an organization. Both systems worked fine for their separate groups. After a few years, I think it became pretty evident this wasn't the future. Most of us wanted for UVMCO to have these bifurcated systems. We had a new CIO who joined us in 2018. And I think part of his mandate was to be a little more tech forward, collaborative. And I think that's why we ended up searching out a new system, forming a committee to help us do that. So you've identified this problem. You also have a new CIO that wants vertical integration in the tech stack. What was the decision-making process from there? You mentioned a committee that Annie wasn't on. Tell us more about that. The first aha moment in this process was realizing that committee version one was entirely made up of the investment team. It was diverse across the investment team, but it didn't have anyone from ops because the stated problem was we, the investment team, don't really like the research platform. We can't really find things in it. It's clunky. We just don't like it. And so recognizing that that was the stated problem, we looked for a system that would replace it. And it turned out BipSync was in the top three. It was, I think it was at the top at that point. But committee version one got to the end of this process, which I think we spent about three months on. We looked at probably two dozen systems. And our goal was just to say, we're either going to re-underwrite what we have, or we're going to commit to replacing it. That committee decided that what we had was fine. And compared to everything else, there wasn't really a need to cycle it out. And the reason for that, I think, was because we were looking at what was the need specifically for that team without stepping back and looking at it holistically across the organization. Immediately, I knew that couldn't have been the right answer. I realized we weren't asking the right question. The question we were asking was, what system can we replace this existing system with? And the question we should have been asking was, what are we doing across all of our processes and with all of our data? What are we not doing with it to really accelerate what we're doing? And as soon as that aha moment made itself clear, then Annie and some others from Ops joined in and we revisited this process. We call it Committee V2. And in Committee V2, we went through a truncated version because we had already auditioned these systems 
and I felt bad we redemoed some of them in some cases, but went through that process almost again, but through a different lens. And that lens was if we tried to organize our data across the organization and get our processes and our handoffs right first, what would that look like? And how would we take all of this information that we have, make these handoffs clean? When you went to the market, where'd you go to find that list? It was a ton of different methods. It was basically any source we could find that would give us a name to go look at. It was everything from surveying our peers to see what everyone else used, literally Googling it and seeing what came up and everything in between. Almost everyone was using other platforms. Two or three other groups. Two or three, yeah. Our peer group is a small group. There aren't that many of these solutions out there that are tailored for this specific research-centric. The bulk of our sourcing, though, came from just general research and peer surveys. And did you go out to RFP? It started as an RFP, and then it turned into, let's do a demo. Once it became clear that there really weren't that many of them out there, there's a certain number of boxes you have to check to be able to be on the list. And so when I say we looked at a dozen and a half of them, very rapidly, probably a dozen of them were, can't be that one, it can't be that one, it can't be that one. So we were left with, I think, five that didn't get dropped off very quickly. Not a lot in the running. And one of them was the incumbent or the replacement for the incumbent. So it wasn't that hard to do. We could have RFP'd it. We decided, let's just go do a demo because it was a little bit more flexible and it gave us the opportunity. We're talking about Committee V1. It gave us the opportunity to just say, we're just going to see what's out there. And if we like anything enough to the point where we want to RFP it, then we'll go RFP the top three. That was the plan. And go from there. We didn't get there because we ended up saying what we have is good enough. So we never ended up doing an RFP. And on round two, when we went to revisit it, we realized we didn't want to RFP the incumbent system, but we gave them the opportunity to be first and it dropped to third. We then gave BipSync the opportunity to go through that same process. We proof of concepted them basically in tandem. And that's how we got to them as the front runner. Maybe go back a little bit. Did you think about building something or is it purely a buy decision? Did you even think about building it in-house? We did. My philosophy on this is if there is something that you can buy that is viable, that you should lean toward that. Because specifically at our headcount, it doesn't really make sense for us to be trying to figure out how to staff or resource to manage and maintain something that we built. So there has to be a really good reason to do it. Where Bipsync fit cleanly into that for us was the fact that it is so configurable. It also, the onset of that process is one of the reasons why I think some people are hesitant at least to look more carefully or closely at it is because it is so configurable. There's so much you can do with it. But if you have an idea of what you want to accomplish, you can do almost anything in it. And so when we saw that system, I knew almost immediately that we were going to be able to configure it to do almost anything we needed to. No system is perfect. No platform is perfect. But Dipsync definitely came out ahead on that. And I think it checked enough of the boxes for us that no one really, at the end of demoing it, wanted to build. Everyone was fine with buying. You would think that the governance process for each institution is a little bit different. And having that flexibility to configure it to map your own workflow, there's power in that. 
in our old system that Blake talked a little bit about. We had workflows built out to help us kind of manage the capital call process and other key ops processes. So it was important when we're like decided that we're going to go along with this system that we'd be able to build out similar types of dashboards. Um, I think right now we have maybe eight to 10 dashboards that help process everything from capital calls to tax documents to things actually on our shareholder side as well. And did you have any must-haves? We're looking for the system. We end up selecting BipSync, but here were our deal breakers. It must do X. What were those? I think on my side, it's the ability to be nimble and configurable. If I have someone who's going to be out on leave, I need Blake to be able to go out and easily adjust the settings on who can approve what and how the documents flow through a system. And we found that to be extremely nimble. We might have a change or something I need adjusted. Blake's able to quickly communicate it to the team and usually it's updated the next day. So I think that was one of the must-haves outside of the basic thing, just responsiveness and making updates that we need. The big one for me was a fully featured API. It had to have an API that let us push and pull almost all the data that it was going to have available. And the reason for that actually goes back to build versus buy. The great thing about this platform is the answer to build versus buy is yes. It's yes and yes for us. And we knew that when we saw it because you can configure it off the shelf to do what you need to as a system you've purchased. You can also configure internal software to interact with that API and do almost anything you need it to because you could pull a copy out of the system, process it, and then you can push information back in. And so that's actually one of the major ways we use the system now. And one of the reasons that it's so powerful for us is in addition to being able to off the shelf configure these rules that fire off based on criteria for specific things we put in fields or entire workflows we've built out or the type of note that we've entered. There's all of that built into the system and we use those rules where possible. But we also have a full two-way communication with this master data management system that we built to onboard the data. And we keep a copy of all of the relevant information locally so that we can run our own analysis and analytics on that data. That's enabled by the BIPSync system. And you can build that out if you have the desire to do so. So that's the best part about this is it's something that works for research. I would argue it works fairly well for document management too, even though it wasn't really designed that way originally. But it works for both of those purposes out of the box. And then you can layer on anything else knowing that you've got a full API. And so it is build versus buy, it's build and buy. And how did that resonate with the broader committee? I think from my perspective, we had the two systems in place. I really wanted to make sure that the investment ops team went into the new system as well. So it was really important. I think everyone on my team actually had a strong buy-in to the program. We, we did a few demos. It looks like a great modern system. And I think really going through and explaining, hey, everything's working today. That's hard to break if you're an accountant. If everything's working, you're in accounting and finance. Do you really want to make a change? But I think everyone on my team is fairly tech forward and savvy at picking up new systems. I think we're all excited because we saw the value that it could bring to our processes, as well as dealing with the increased data documents we had. When I started in 2016, I think we've increased our line items 
maybe by double. We have a few more people on the team, but we really have to have a great system in place and great process to really deal with that increase in line items, deal with the increased complexity that our investment team brings. So I think it was fairly easy buy-in from the investment office perspective. When you go and you present that to the committee, how do you navigate the pitch from the reality? When we first looked at this, I was speaking to Danny Donato directly about it. And I told him, we really like it, but it's going to be really hard for us to get buy-in across the organization. Because I told him about committee B1, committees decided they're fine with what we've got. Then that juxtaposed to our ops side saying, we actually really want to make a change here. There was a little bit of variation across the organization in terms of how excited everyone was to make a change. No one was really opposed to it, but there were more people who were either ambivalent or kind of just didn't have an opinion, frankly, because they were comfortable with the processes they had developed in the existing system. That's, I think, one of the big hurdles with any system transition is if you're not careful when you're looking to re-underwrite your tech stack, it's not always evident that you should make a change until it's too late. And then once it's too late, you've got a problem. It's important not to wait too long. And we knew that, but getting buy-in wasn't too hard across the organization once we were able to pitch the efficiencies improvements here, specifically these handoffs. An example of that is prior to our transition, our deal sourcing team would put all of their content into the research platform that technically everyone had access to, but the ops team didn't really see unless they went and looked for it. And you had to know how to look for what you were looking for. It wasn't intuitive. One thing that's great about BibSync is as a single system for us, if all of our content goes in there, then all of the content is, for lack of a better term, discoverable across the organization. So someone who might have had a very specific job in ops or for an investment accounting role might have had to know what they were looking for to find that content in the research platform before, whereas now, is fed to you almost like a stock ticker. It's fed to you and you don't have to go looking as hard for it. So there's those sorts of efficiencies. In addition to that, we have other handoffs. We had to rethink, how are we going to reflow that process of acquiring our data? How do we determine who's responsible for the information? And that was part of that nine-month process prior to onboarding BibSync and prior to even migrating the data and deciding how was figuring out, well, what do we need this to look like? When does it make most sense for these handoffs to occur? And what was the tipping point? So back to the committee, you feel like, okay, we're going to go from two systems. We do need to go to then one system. What was the tipping point that said, okay, we're going to go in this direction with BibSync? If I had to point to one thing, I was talking about this with our COO. I posed a question and then gave a data point. The question was, how many active funds do we have? The fun fact there was that you could grab that three different ways from two different systems because everyone has a slightly different definition. It matters to ops when it's funded, and it matters to the investment team once we've committed. And so committed without funding, it just depends on the team for some of these definitions. And so being able to have a defined, these are our sequence of steps. This is a prospective manager with a high prospect. This is one that we've committed to, but we haven't funded. This is one that we have funded. 
you think of it like a linear scale. And all we really had to do was figure out what should that sequence look like and then build that in to our process so that that could be part of the model we put into BibSync. The transition of the system really helped us make the behavioral change necessary more easy. I don't think we would have been as successful in changing existing behavior if we hadn't had a front-end user interface shift at the same time. But if there was any one point that I could say convinced anyone, it was giving that data point to our COO and saying, we have three different answers and they're all right. They're all correct. (laughs) So then you implement, how is that actually improved your operations today? What's the practical implications today? Before, if we wanted to learn about a prospective investment or a current investment, we would have to very purposely go into the system, know what to look for. Having BipSync that has a news tickler, it's made my team be able to access the information, really have it in your face. You see an interesting note title, you click and read it. You don't really have to go looking for it. From an operational perspective, I think everyone who's on my team, most of them have like a specific strategy they are responsible for. So it's very easy to set up a subscription for that specific strategy. So you see all of the manager notes. You can easily stay on top of what's in your largest funds, what's their largest holdings, what's happening. If the quarterly statement moves by 20%, what's causing that? You can typically go back and look at the notes because they're oftentimes there. And I think it has made my team maybe more valuable to others in the organization, whether it be our investment team, our asset allocation and risk team, to be able to answer questions helped us to stay more knowledgeable on our data. It brought the silo walls down. That made shifting information from one team to the other much cleaner. A great example of this is our asset allocation and risk team does a lot with data. And that requires them to either source it themselves or more efficiently get it from ops because most of that data already exists in our investment ops systems and with our investment ops teams. Prior to being able to tie these together, there wasn't exactly a clean way other than our director of risk running over to Annie and asking for a specific data set. And then someone on Annie's team would have to figure out how to source it and send it over. And it was usually a flat file. So as part of this, we built a risk system internally that houses some of this information. But being able to tie key pieces of data together to say that this manager in BibSync or this fund in BibSync is the same manager or fund as this other one that's in our risk system, that lets us democratize access to the data because those who are doing the analyses don't have to go person to person to interface. They can go through a system and say, oh, without even doing any further looking, I already know that fund X in BibSync is this record in our risk system. And I would say some of the challenges as we've worked through this, it's really integrating, whether it be our ops and our asset allocation or risk team, having everyone on my team understand how the work they're doing is impactful to the rest of the organization. It can be as something as, hey, someone on ops changed this column on the spreadsheet. And now, you know, the risk team has a huge problem. So I think it's been really great to have that collaborative approach to break down some of these silos. And it's reduced a lot of, I would say, redundancy within the organization. 
we had maybe two or three different teams working with the same data, producing a similar report that was a little different. So it resulted in us trying to be a little more collaborative and maybe ops takes the data all the way to a report that's usable across the organization. So I think these are some of the benefits that we've seen from breaking down some of the silos. Can you take an overview of what your tech stack looks like today with BipSync as an engine in the middle of that? Oh, yeah. Good question. I think of BipSync as the primary user-facing system at UVMCO. It's the first place things go, and it's often the last place. We might have processes and data flows that offshoot that in the middle. Visually, I think of it as a hub-and-spoke model. That system Oculus is technically the hub in the middle, is where all of the other systems tie to. Our tech stack in terms of platforms is visually, you've got Oculus in the middle. You have BipSync as the largest spoke that is talking directly with that. It is where almost all of the users interface and interact. And then we have a few other systems, our risk system, Rotunda. We have a shadow accounting system. We have a few other systems that plug on to that, but they all basically interface through that master data management system, Oculus. BibSync is where we take the data from originally, and it's where we push the data back to if we have some sort of logic or changes that we have to apply to it. An example of that would be the investment lifecycle. Our deal team owns a manager record. We say they own it up through the point where it goes active. So if it's low-level perspective or even high-level perspective, they will be the first group to put that into BibSync. They own it. It is theirs. At the point when we have a fund that we're going to invest in, it goes through that IC process. And when we commit, when the CIO approves that we're going to commit capital, for the first time, that is basically our trigger for that process to hand off to ops. At that point, all of the fields that are on those records become the property of the ops group. It's one way that we can capture as much information up front as possible, but clearly delineate who owns it. Does the investment committee decision, is that managed within BipSync and recorded within that system as well? Yes, to an extent. There are probably a lot of side channel communications on, on that process. So it's not as linear as you'd like to think it is. It never is. But if you imagine it as a linear process, the fund pipeline is something we have configured and that we think of it as a linear A, B, C, D, E, F. So there's different levels of prospect and then there's different levels of active. And then should we end up terminating a relationship, there's different ways we can define terminating. So that process is tracked in the funds as pipelines in BibSync. And then we roll the status of those fund pipelines up to the manager and we aggregate them. And so depending on the type of strategy, if it's a public strategy, you're typically going to have one fund per manager. And so it's very easy. It's one-to-one. You might have private strategies where you have multiple funds. And so we have some logic that we apply using the rules in BibSync and some, in our case, logic that we have applied in Oculus that lets us read down when there's a change on those records and says, okay, how many active funds are there? If there's more than one active, then that means the status on the manager is active. And because BibSync's API is so fully featured, we are able to go back and change values in specific fields 
on the manager record to be whatever we want them to be based on that logic. That's one main way that we tie the investment lifecycle or the IC process to the data in the system so that the organization can see it as a whole. I want to turn to where you go from here. Any big projects where you take it to the next level? Yeah, I mean, I think AI is top of mind for everyone right now, certainly mine. The technology is very exciting. I think we have already seen quite a lot enabled by AI and machine learning in general. The next few years are probably going to be very huge in the space. I do think one way to frame how, at least how we think about the structure of our data is you don't know what the technology is going to look like five years from now. And so if you think about everything through that lens, if the longevity of your organization and your tech stack and your data structure is important, you have to think about how can we best structure this so that what we are doing now supports what we need it to do now, but also what we want it to do five years from now, even though we don't know what that is yet. That's the tough part. But for us, that means thinking about what other technologies could make use of this information and how might they need it. Specific examples for us would be, you've got content that maybe today you could extract structured data from unstructured content. Let's say there's tabular data stuck inside of a PDF document. Extracting that reliably right now is maybe 90% at best. Someday it's going to be 99.9. And once you get it to the point where it is, there is huge value in having your data structured and your data structuring in such a manner that you will be able to have in your catalog a clear idea of what kinds of information might come from these sources and systems that they will flow into downstream. That is one way we think about it. Another way we think about it is context will be important, specifically with AI. So if you know that you're going to have, right now the big thing is chatbots and large language models and integrating those in different ways. If you know that you're going to be implementing these sorts of technologies, universally, in order to make those work as effectively as possible, you have to give them context to your data. And what that means for us is we have to make sure that everything that we've got is labeled and that it's cataloged appropriately. If you want to be as ready as possible for implementing these technologies, it's going to be clear that you're going to have to feed it that context. That's something that's top of mind for me to be able to implement these and make them as useful as possible. BibSync and its API allow us to tie those together and provide context to these models so that when we do onboard them day one, we should be able to give it the information it needs to more relevantly source answers. I think for me, some of the stuff you just talked about with AI machine learning, it will really help my team. I certainly don't expect there to be less line items, less complexity in a few years. <laughs> so I expect some of the things he touched on to help me deal with the volume and some of the manual processes we currently have. I would say we've had it sync for a year and a half. We haven't stopped adjusting or making improvements to adding on processes. I expect that to continue and for us to work through some of these currently manual processes, automate them, and for my team to be able to focus on what really can we add to the, the investment process and to Vimco as a whole. So that's what I look forward to most. 
love to get some advice from you both for people who are going out in the market and looking for these types of solutions. Any best practices that you would share? The first one would be try to listen to everyone's input. The more input you have, the better. And at the same time, try to interpret that input through the lens of ensuring that you're answering the right question, making sure that you are asking and answering the right question will set you up for success in this process. For us, that meant not necessarily trying to just replace the system when the system was the stated complaint. It meant replacing the system, but it also meant reevaluating that whole set of tagging, that whole hierarchy of node structure, and how we're going to flow everything from these source systems to the destination systems. So don't overlook that step would be one, I would say. I think we were going through this process in the middle of COVID, but we did roll it out a bit long. You talked about committee one. I think the issue there was trying to gain consensus from everyone in the organization. As we went to committee two, it was, hey, what do we expect from each member of the committee to find what feedback we expected and how we are going to intake that to think about our decision. So I think that really helped us finally settle on a system and actually get it rolled out very successfully. One other question would be on adoption. So you can get selection, you can do buy-in, but adoption is really the critical piece. You could select it, go to contract, and then nobody uses it. And that's not where you want to be. So any advice on how do you get a team to actually adopt and move away from whatever they were using to a new solution? I think that actually happens organically. If you focus enough on that first step of getting your data in order first. That's why it's so important. We actually had an incredibly smooth rollout and a very shallow learning curve. I attribute that in large part to both BipSync's ease of its layout is fairly intuitive. So even if you've never seen it, you can do the first four things that you need to do in it pretty much right away. Beyond that, if you have existing data that you're moving in, Having a plan for the end users for how they're going to figure out how to get what they got before when they knew how to get what they got before was critical. But I think largely the adoption happened organically because we were able to provide enough training to not be annoying to people (laughs) in advance. But we didn't really need a lot of training because it was intuitive in its setup and we had publicized that path from A to Z in advance. So it was very smooth, I would say. Yeah, I would attribute most of the success to the nine months Blake talked about and all the thought he put into it. From my team's perspective, we didn't have to switch the exact same time as the investment team, but I wanted it to be a cohesive organizational switch because I knew it would be extremely valuable for my team and others across UVMCO. We did maybe two training sessions kind of organization-wise, so that's an hour long each. So very short, but is extremely intuitive. From the ops side, we certainly, during that nine months, we set up a sandbox where we would go through our dashboards for processing capital calls. We would pretend to process a capital call, go through all of the steps. So my team was very well rehearsed and trusted that the system would work. We certainly put a lot of additional checks in place for the initial switch to make sure we're not going to miss the capital call and everything transferred over appropriately. The system's been great. We have new hires who are able to jump right in, find what they need, 
and actually find a ton of information out initially. So I really think it helps the development of new hires because you don't have to explain to them what to search for. It's organically in their face, in their system, they're going to see it. Blake, Annie, really appreciate the time today. It was fascinating to hear about the evolution of your tech stack and how you approach the entire process with BipSync. I'm sure others will get a lot of the case study. So thanks again. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.